John chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. The Christian faith is distinct from all other faiths in the world. It's not a philosophy. Now, don't get me wrong, it contains philosophy, it contains teaching, it contains commands, it contains, but that's not the nuts and bolts of it. That's not the, the central focus. The central focus is not a philosophy, but a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And not only is it a person, but even within his life, there are certain pivotal events that is the focus. The Apostle Paul was right when he looked at the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and said if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, then all of this falls apart. We might as well just go back, eat, drink, and, tomorrow, and be merry because tomorrow you die because none of it's true if it's not for the resurrection of Christ. And so that's what brings us to the distinction of Christianity. Christianity is focused on a person not a philosophy, and it's rooted, it's grounded in historical events, which means they can be verified, they can be established, they can be looked at, they can be, they can be trusted in. As we look at this passage, we're looking at an explanation, not just a narrative of the things that happened that first Christmas, but actually an explanation of what God was accomplishing in that first Christmas through His Son, and exactly who is the Son, what is the nature of the Son, is disclosed within this passage as well. It is as Kenneth Richards samples said in his book called Without a Doubt. He said, Religion as traditionally understood typically reflects man's speculative and uncertain search for an undisclosed or not fully disclosed deity, the divine mystery. The initiative to discover truth about God in such religions resides in the limited and imperfect creature. And so he's describing other religions of the world and he's saying religion is usually man's effort from just looking at the things around him to try to figure out who God is. But biblical revelation he would say, on the other hand, reflects God's reaching toward man, whereupon he clearly and specifically discloses himself. And that's exactly what we see in John chapter 1, is God giving us a very clear understanding. Matthew records for us events 
surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke records for us events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. John comes in and says, concerning the birth of Jesus Christ, this is what God was accomplishing. And God reveals it to us in very clear ways. And as we look through the passage, the clarity, with clarity, we can see without a doubt that Jesus Christ is God. That's the significance of the fact that he was born of the virgin, is that he did not have a human father. He had God as his father. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a little bit. Also, the titles, it said that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so as we look through this passage right here and we wander through this a little bit, um, I want to point out to us this morning four proofs that are from this passage of the deity of Christ. The first proof that we see of the deity of Christ, that he is in fact God, is divine titles are used. There's basically two divine titles that are used through here. He's referred to as God. And he's referred to as the Word, and he's referred to as the Son of God. Now, the two that I'd label as being clear explanations are the terms God and Son of God. It starts off and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It just states it plainly. As we get down farther in the passage, we find down toward the, toward the end of it, in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. Now, who's that talking about? That would be referencing the Father, right? No one has ever seen God, talking about God the Father. But then it says right after that, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now, who would that be talking about? That would be, obviously, Jesus is at the Father's side. So it's talking about God the Son. But it refers to Him in both the beginning and the end of the passage in the same way. It refers to Jesus at the beginning of the passage. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And at the end of the passage, it says nobody's ever seen God, talking about the Father. But God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. And so, you know what, it's, it's beyond our understanding. How can this happen? How can he be, how can the Word be with God and be God at the same time? How can Jesus, how can you have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in this Trinity? How can they be one and three at the same time? I don't know. I think it's beyond our ability to understand it. There are things that people use sometimes as an, an illustration of it, like an egg. Egg has a shell, a yolk. Whites, so it's three parts, but it's one egg. But all the things that we find in our physical realities fall short of expressing the fullness, the full understanding. Because each of those parts of the egg are parts of the egg. They're not the whole egg in total. But yet when we come to God, we recognize that we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But each of them are God. They're not just part of God. They're God. And so I think it's beyond our ability to understand. That used to drive me crazy. I used to think, I just want to understand everything. And I didn't want anything in the Bible to be outside of my understanding or anything about God to be outside of my understanding. And, I, you know, one day I was studying through something. I don't even remember what the subject was. And I thought, this is crazy. If I finally have a God that I can completely understand, He's as small as my pea brain. And we're in trouble if that's the case. There's a lot of mystery and majesty in the person of God. And we're not going to understand Him completely because He's so much higher removed than what we are. But what we do see in this passage is that Jesus is clearly referred to as both being with God and being God at the same time. Nobody's ever seen God, but the only God that's at his right hand, he has made him known, points out his divinity. It also points it out in the in the title Son of God as well. Now, often in our culture, when we think of father-son relationship, we often think of uh, authoritarian structure, which that exists within the relationship of God as well. But that's usually, I think, primarily what we think about. But in the Jewish culture, that's not the only thing that they thought about or even primarily what they thought about. The first thing that came to the Jewish person's mind when they thought of a father-son relationship 
is sameness of nature. I'm a man. All of my sons are man. I'm human. All my children are human because they share my nature. They got that nature from me. Well, it's the same way with God. And that's why it's in the book of John when Jesus referred to God as His Father, the Jewish people were ready to stone Him. They were ready to stone Him. And He said, why are you, why are you going to stone Me? For what good thing that I've done? Do you want to kill Me? And He said, it's not for a good thing that you've done, but you've said you're the Son of God, making yourself equal with God. See, we don't usually go there. When they think Father, Son, they think equality, sameness of nature. If He's God and He's their Son, then He's claiming to be God. And so these things express that Jesus Christ is God in the titles that He's given. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the things like uh, with the Jehovah's Witness, for example, they don't believe in the deity of Christ or the Trinity. And so one of the things that they've done is in their translation of the Bible, they've changed it. And so when you look at John chapter 1 and verse 1, they, they change the way that it reads. They change it to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so he's just another God. But it really doesn't, it really doesn't solve the issue at all. It doesn't work. And the reason is, if you look at Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11, which I find it ironic, by the way, is the, is the theme verse that the Jehovah's Witnesses get their name out of. Is notice it starts off, it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. So God has made this statement that he is the only God that is real, and that there's no God before him. There's not ever going to be another God after him. He alone is the only God. And so when you get to John chapter 1, even if you want to try to make it read, which it doesn't, but if you want to try to make it read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Well, according to Isaiah 43, if He's a God, He has to be the God, or He's no God at all. Because there was never another God other than God, and there's never going to be another God other than God. So if Jesus Christ is a God at all, He has to be the God. So God clearly, in using the titles about Christ that are in this passage, He's telling us our Savior, this individual that has come to lay down His life for us, is in fact God. He calls Him that at the beginning of the passage. He calls Him that at the end of the passage. And as we wander through here, we're going to see some more evidence that He is exactly that. We also see divine attributes through the passages as well. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Just like it says at the end of our passage here in John 1.18, it says, Nobody has ever seen God, but through Christ we get to see God. It's through Christ that God makes Himself known. When we see Christ, we get to see Him. That's what it says in Colossians, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past God spoke to our fathers, our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He provided for purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. It says He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. I always think of this time of year when I think of this verse, because I think of when I was a kid and my mom had me make sugar cookies at Christmas time, and we had different cookie cutters, and you'd roll out the door and you'd take the cookie cutter and 
push it into the dough. What the cookie cutter looked like was exactly the image that was on the dough. And that's exactly what it's talking about here. It says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation. Other translations say the exact imprint of God's nature. Exactly who God is is born in Christ. He is divine. And that's exactly why when Jesus was talking to his apostles before Jesus went to the cross and he's telling them, I'm going to I'm going to leave and I'm going to be put to death. And then someday I'm coming back for you. Philip would be confused and Philip would say, show us the father. And Jesus would tell Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father because he bears the imprint of God. He bears the he is the exact representation of the Father. Now, some of the divine attributes that we see uh, manifested in Jesus Christ is, first of all, His eternal existence. His eternal existence. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning, that He was already there. In the beginning, not that the Word was created, in the beginning was the Word. It reminds me a lot of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was already there. He's eternal. And that's exactly what it's saying about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. He already existed. And I, I love that because you then compare that with down in verse 14, the Word became flesh. That's what happened at the birth of Jesus Christ. He already existed in the beginning as God. What happened at the birth? He took on flesh. He became a man. Eternally, He was God. Temporally, He became a man. And so we see His eternal existence. The only being that has an eternal existence is God. That is a manifestation of His deity. Not only that, but we see that same truth spoken out by John the Baptist. We notice when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says, I'm not the light. I'm here to bear witness to the light. That light is a, uh, that life is the light of man. And he says, I'm not Him. I'm, just, I'm bearing witness to Him. And he makes this statement about Jesus, which is astounding. He says, He is above me. Because He was before me. Now wait a minute. John the Baptist is older than Jesus. He's six months older than Jesus in physical life as a human. But John the Baptist would make the statement, Jesus is greater than me. Why? Because He was before me. Why would he make a statement like that? Is somebody greater than somebody else just because they're older? No. But if John the Baptist, who is older than Jesus by six months recognizes that Jesus is actually pre-exists Him. He's alluding to Jesus' eternal nature. And He's saying, He's God. He's greater than me. Because He was before me. He who is younger than me was actually before me. He's referencing to His eternal nature. It's the same thing when Jesus gets in a discussion with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders tell Jesus, they ask Him a question, they say, are you, are you older than our father Abraham? When did you meet Abraham? Because Jesus made a comment. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, you're not 40 years old. How, how, how do you know Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And that I am term is, is the self-existence term of God. When Moses asked God, who do I say sent me? He said, tell him, I am sent you. I'm the one that exists in and of myself. And Jesus used that same terminology. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 also points out this truth. It says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He was before all things. He existed eternally. So not only do we see His divine attributes, we see His eternal existence, we also see His self-existence in verse 3. As we read verse 3 there, it says, All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that has been made. 
the reason that I say that this argues for self-existence is it also alludes to another point that we're going to point out in just a moment is because of saying that everything that was made was made through him. What was made through him? Everything that was made. Which means there's, there's nothing created that wasn't made by him. It takes him out of things that were made. He did not have a creation. He was not created at a certain point. He existed eternally, which means that he existed eternal, eternally in and of himself. He was not of, of any of the things that were made, that were fashioned by God. We also see in verse 4 that he is the source of life and the source of light. And of course we recognize both of those features to be things that come from God, that God is in control of. It was God who spoke in the beginning, let there be light, and then there was light. God is the author of life. And so we recognize that those things are an attribute to deity. Also, His glory. In verse 14, Jesus talks about, the glo- talks about the glory of Christ. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus would pray, was praying to the Father. And he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So he's saying to the Father, Look, Father, I shared your glory before the world began. Glorify me now with that same glory that I shared with you eternally in the past. One of the things that's astounding about that also is that if we look back in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God says, I don't share my glory. The glory is something that belongs specifically to God. And God says, I do not share my glory. But when Jesus talked to the Father, He would say, Father, glorify me with the same glory that we shared before the world began. Jesus Christ obviously shares the glory with the Father, which emphasizes His deity. Not only do we see His glory, but we also see that He is, as He stated in verse 14 and 17, that He is the source of grace and of truth. Not only do we see these attributes of Christ that are pointed out through the passage that show that He is God, but we also see that there's actions that He's involved in. There's actions that He's involved in that, that can only be attributed to God. As we look at him, first of all, in verse 3, we see that he created. It's emphasized repeatedly that, that it's he that created. Where we know that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then in, in this passage it says that he created everything through Christ and for Christ. So the Son of God also involved in that creative act. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. That passage we already read in Hebrews chapter 1, the first three or four verses there, it also pointed out that He was involved, that He was the Creator. And so we see Jesus is attributed with the creative activity of creating this world that we live in. Also, we see that he established sonship. Now what I mean by this, I couldn't think of a very good way to make this very clear without kind of more explanation. And so what I mean by establishing sonship is when we look at verses 12 and 13, it says that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. 
And so Jesus, it says, is in control of that, in authority of that. Jesus has the ability to make us children of God, to make us God's children, make us sons of God. Now, the Bible teaches us there's two different ways that we become sons of God, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians that we are, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we're adopted into the family of God. We're adopted as His children with full rights as sons. And the Bible also tells us, we look at John chapter 3, and Nicodemus had a discussion with Jesus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, a very religious man, a very righteous man outwardly, and Jesus told him, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. And he repeated it to him again after that. And then went on to explain to him that the born again happens through believing by looking up to the cross that Jesus Christ would be lifted on. But Jesus has this ability to make us children of God. Now the Bible does use uh, terminology like that in a couple different ways. In one sense, in, in the book of Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul is having a discussion with some philosophers, he tells them that God is not far off. And that we are, as some of their poets had said, that we are his offspring. And so it's talking about in a creative sense there, in a creative sense there, since God made all of us, all of mankind, believers and unbelievers alike, God made all of us, we are all the offspring of God through his creative work. But what this is talking about is his ability to then take and make us sons in in his saving work. By God's creative work, we are His offspring, but we're not His we're not His 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 sons, His children in a saving way, and that's what we desperately need. Because the offspring of God fell into sin and became corrupt and became separated from God, and now Jesus, when He comes as our Savior, He comes to be our Redeemer, our Savior, to make us sons, and He's the one that is in authority to accomplish that task. Well. Not only that, but we also see that he was, he was uh, involved in revealing. In verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's talking about Jesus revealing the Father to us. Uh, it does the same thing in verse 18, as we've already pointed out, that nobody's ever seen God the Father, but, but the only God who's sitting at His right hand, God the Son, has made Him known. It is through Jesus Christ that we get to see what God is like. If we want to know what, what kind of decisions God would make in our life, we read the Gospels and we learn about Christ. What does it look like if God was one of us? There's this popular song, I think, a few years back that said something about that. If God was one of us, what would, what would it look like? You know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what we see. We see somebody that was God and was man, and we get to see Him live that life. Live out God's nature in a human body. And He is revealing God to us in that way. Not only that, but we see that He blessed. In verse 16, it says, For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. And so He blesses us. The Bible teaches without a doubt that the greater always blesses the lesser. And that Jesus being deity then blesses us in our life. And so we see that the things that stand out about this passage that demonstrate that Jesus is God, that He does have this divine nature, we see that He has these titles, these attributes, these actions that He's involved in. And then lastly, we see this divine, this divine prerogative, I would call it. This divine prerogative. What I mean by that is He's to be believed in. Now we take a lot of that 
kind of lightly these days. Uh, you can watch countless Christmas shows that in the end will sum it up by Christmas being about believing in yourself or, or just believing in belief or, uh, in, in itself. But, but belief, the, the important thing about belief is the object that is placed in. If you put your trust in an unworthy object, you'll fall flat. Just as if the simplest analogy of that is probably a chair. These ones are getting kind of rickety up here. I don't suggest uh, putting a lot of weight on them. You put your weight on an untrustworthy surface and it's going to let you down. Well, that's the whole point. Trust, trust is only a good, as good as the object that it's trusted in. No matter how sincere you are, if you're sincerely wrong, that, that's a misplaced trust. That's a bad, bad place to be sent. It's not going to give you the benefit that it needs. But through this passage, we see that John is testifying to all this for a purpose. What is his purpose? He says, I'm testifying to all this so that you may believe. In fact, you get close to the end of John's book and he's saying, after he's told about all these miracles that Christ has done and everything, he says, I didn't tell you about all of them. I'd be writing all day or forever if that was the case. The books of the world itself couldn't contain everything Jesus did. He said, but I tried to write down enough of them so that it would do one thing, so that you could be- believe. You see, that's, that's the point. Jesus is to be believed. He's to be trusted in. That's exactly what got us into trouble in the Garden of Eden. We didn't trust God. And that's exactly how redemption happens. That's exactly how He gets us out of this fix is by our believing in Him. That is the method that God chose to deliver us. He is to be believed. He is to be trusted. He is trustworthy. You know, when you think of all these different events that showed up around Christian or Christmas, we see the angels, and what do the angels do? They come, they're worshiping. They're singing of the glories of God. And they're relaying a message. They're evangelizing. They're telling the shepherds, go into Bethlehem. You're going to find this baby. He's the Savior that God has promised. We find, we find Mary pondering all these things in her heart. We find wise men following a star, even the stars, even the, the constellation is proclaiming the, the salvation that is being provided by God. And the, the, the shepherd or the wise men, when they come and they get to Herod and they say, well, where is he specifically? We're kind of in the general location now. Now where do we go? And they point out the reason. They say the reason we want to come is because we want to worship him. Herod says, when you find him, let me know so that I can come worship him too, which was a lie, but it, even he recognized that he was to be worshipped. And then when the wise men get before Jesus, they give him the gifts and they kneel down and they worship him. To be worshipped, to be believed in, is a prerogative of God, not of us. John was recording these things for us so that we would believe. And why do we need to believe? Because it's real. It's true. He's God. God did an amazing thing. God took on flesh and became a man, walked among us, laid down his life for us, and rose again from the dead to conquer death. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, making intercession for us, waiting till the Father says it's time for him to come back and get us. That's an incredible, incredible feat. That could only happen by somebody who's not only took on flesh, but by somebody who's already God.